Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am a doctoral candidate in the Department of English at the University of Washington, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today we are joined by Dr. Aaron Kuei Ning, who is an associate professor at the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Today we will discuss Dr. Ning's book, In Gratitude, The Debt-Bound Daughter in Asian American Literature, which was published by New York University Press in 2001 and in 2013 won the Literary Studies Book Award from the Association for Asian American Studies. Ingratitude investigates the figure of the daughter in Asian American literature, which has lately been dismissed as a figure that downplays political and historical conflict and instead fulfills the model minority achievement. Ning responds to this view by seeing the immigrant family as a form of capitalist enterprise, and thus the Asian American daughter as a locus of conflicting power. Through literary analyses of texts by Jade Snow Wong, Maxine Hong Kingston, Evelyn Lau, and others, Ning explores the figure of the Asian American daughter as a person born in debt, whose obligation to the parents is always designated to fail, and whose rebellion comes in the form of sexual freedom and through the act of writing itself. Aaron, welcome to the show. I wonder if you uh, could begin the interview by describing the intellectual trajectory that brought you to write uh, the book In Gratitude. Sure. Um, The book came out of a a graduate seminar taught by Julia Bader at Berkeley. She's retired now, I believe. That got me thinking about family spaces along these lines. It was um, the course was uh, called the Marital Gothic. And we read Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, Kate Chopin's The Awakening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, a handful of gothic romances. I think this is a long time ago, but set in dark castles with with brooding masters and young heroines. And that probably seems an odd place to start this book, but it also explains why there are these periodic references to gothic romances in in Ingratitude. And these probably seem completely out of place <laughs> to anyone else. Uh, at least I, I felt that they might as I was writing the book, but they were unavoidable to me because I, I just couldn't I couldn't write my book without them because they were part of its genesis. Oh, interesting. So uh, how do you feel the, the Gothic particularly brought you to think about the, uh, the family and the Asian-American daughter? Well, what, what struck me and uh, what stayed with me from that course was this phenomenological sense of dis-ease, of suffocation, of, of dying that these women were experiencing, despite the fact that surrounding them were spaces of material comfort, seemingly mm. you know, loving husbands or children, no apparent violence. So what were these women dying of, and and why couldn't they tell us? And I I recognize that feeling as um, we went through the course of that, that going crazy in part because what pains you doesn't seem real to anyone else. And 
if you try to explain it, it, it sounds like nothing. So my book became this extended effort to explain what seems so normal in um, a lot of Asian immigrant families that it may sound like nothing to speak of. Mm. You use that keyword, uh, immaterial suffering, uh, quite a lot in the book, especially in uh, your first chapter, to kind of uh, get at the, I guess, the uh, past this kind of stereotype of whining. I think you also attend to that, too. Uh, I think that's a very interesting place to start off with. But first of all, why why you start with the Asian-American daughter? What concerned you with that figure in particular? Uh, you know, If you're reading Gothic novels, there's all sorts of different family members that uh, kind of appear. So why the daughter and how does you think your own um, experience um, informed that project? <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could say that the, the work came out of some noble, truly academic interest. But why the Asian American daughter is basically it's because I am one. And I felt that Asian American scholarship had come to this consensus about what intergenerational conflict mm. meant that was silencing and, and also wrong. What do you what do you feel that uh, that consensus was particularly on the on the Asian American daughter? Well, um, that these narratives that you know I I select for here um, are the kinds of things that would get dismissed mm. uh, out of hand as being you know just another commercial venture by a sellout daughter making her family and culture look bad with with no real redeeming uh, political or critical qualities. Mm. So part of your project seems to be then to bring politics or uh, the kind of larger social structure uh, under examination through the, this figure? Right, right. To recontextualize, I guess, these narratives in political ways and give them back um, a, uh, an ideological analysis that, that saw them with new value. As, as far as how my experience informed this project, I, it, was, it was difficult. Mm. I... I spent a lot of time and energy uh, agonizing on not on how not to speak autobiographically. Mm. And this project was thoroughly autobiographical, so you know not how not to expose or reveal things about my family, despite the fact that our relationships informed every word I put down on these pages. But, you know, as I said, I didn't I didn't want to write another autobiography that would just be pigeonholed mm. and dismissed. So I kept the I kept the academic language and methodology firmly in place at all times as a, as a kind mm. of screen or as an enabling mechanism. Mm. And, and then I also dropped these little hints. <laughs> um maybe glimpses, I guess, of where the book came from emotionally. Because I wanted to I wanted it to be recognizable to people to to call to readers who might know the same feeling even if they're not academics. Hmm. Uh, by the, uh, the term Asian American daughter, you also seem most concerned with daughters of immigrants, particularly daughters of immigrants uh, who came post-1965 or who were born after 1965. Uh, so what about why this historical period, particularly why this uh, context? Well, I think why those daughters uh, or, or why those kids anyway has to do with why those parents. Mm. 
So immigrants who came post-1965 also came post-civil rights era and at or, or after the consolidation of Asian Americans into this discourse of the model minority. So it's like being, I think of it as being, being born in, as an American into the waiting arms of that role, or as we see in um, Nadia Kim or Nilou's work, having been, been groomed for it well before your arrival. So these post-1965 families are um, arguably particularly prone to buying in with relatively little friction mm. to this neoliberal role of producing good little capitalist workers, successful and and profitable children. Hmm. You also seem to be wrestling with the uh, model minority myth, which also came into popularity, as we know, uh, post-1960s. Uh, how do you feel this myth uh, affects your, the uh, Asian American families that you're uh, talking about or the, the novels that you're talking about? Um, how do they affect the families? Well, in, in terms of encouraging a, um, a, a positioning of the families um, as what I call cottage industries hmm. for the production of said model minority workers because the, the, the pathway seems clear the pathway seems in fact you know um, very defined right that you, if you will uh, study hard get certain grades take certain subjects uh, get in certain degrees in college that um, the opportunities are, are, are laid out and so um, I think it, it, it because the the paradigm was so welcoming of uh, Asian Americans, so it kind of expected of them in some ways that it became uh, more of a self fulfilling prophecy for these families. Mm. So part of this is, seems to be internalizing uh, the model minority myth, or at least the parents internalizing that myth. Right, right, and encouraging the kids too, too. And in, in many cases, I think that internalization on the kids' part was has been very successful. Mm. Uh, I just happen to focus on instances where it's not so much. Yeah, speaking of that uh, internalization, um, I, I was reading an article in the Huffington Post where you responded to the Korean writer, Wesley Yang, about his views growing up uh, Asian-American. Um, and I think this was in 2001, I believe, and during the whole kind of tiger mother uh, you know, discourse uh, mm -hmm. be becoming very popular. Uh, but it leads me to wonder, does the uh, because you respond to Yang particularly in his views of uh, Asian American sons, and I'm I'm just curious how uh, the family or the the cottage industry, as you call it, raises sons differently than daughters. Like uh, why? I guess you focus on daughters partially because you were one, but how do you feel that is uh, different? Uh, I get this question a lot, so I, I appreciate being able to to clarify that mm. in the first three actually of my. Four chapters. Mm -hmm. I don't much differentiate between sons and daughters, really. In in building my arguments about filial debt and threats of disownment, I switch back and forth between second generation narratives by men and women, mm -hmm. even though even though it's the women's narratives that anchor each chapter. And then in the third chapter, about funneling children into lucrative careers. Um, by fetishizing you know, math and, and devaluing mm. the arts. I talk about 
how those expectations were initially only for sons because professional careers weren't an option for large numbers of women in the States, Asian or otherwise, until the late 80s. Mm. Uh, or sorry, late 70s, I guess, early 80s. So I'd say three-fourths of my argument maybe is, is mm. gender neutral. And then the last fourth uh, about sexuality, they particularly seem, seems particularly more relevant to uh, Asian American women. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So in the fourth chapter, I focus on gender-specific restrictions around controlling girls' sexuality uh, because these kinds of restrictions allow for uh, tighter control over a girl's time mm-hmm. and, and space. And, you know, there's, there's an argument that comes out of that, but I think on an emotional level, what I was trying to suss out is that being called a, a whore by one's family mm-hmm decimates uh, at a, a level that even being called shiftless or worthless or ungrateful mm. don't. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess I'd nutshell that by saying that it's a, it's a logical extension of a system of power mm. um, that, that trains the subject to police herself and then makes her, um, makes your own destruction part of the the equation, part of the price and, and means of uh, revenge and escape. I, I found that section fascinating, actually, because you're, and coupled with your response to uh, Wesley Yang, too, because it seems to speak to this idea that's kind of permeated throughout Asian American studies as well, that uh, Asian American males in their re- modes of resistance uh, we read it as immediately politicized, right? That uh, they've been emasculated, right? Mm-hmm, kind of like mm-hmm. held up in geek culture. That you know, that their their absence of sexuality um, for many scholars speaks immediately to a kind of p- political social formation. Whereas when Asian American daughters or sisters, you know, are called whores, that doesn't immediately you know read as political. Um, so I think that's that was a very interesting part of the, the, the both the real response and your last chapter, your fourth chapter, where you uh, can kind of identify how that is immediately political or how the ways that we read it as unpolitical um, speak to our own kind of separate spheres, you know, the idea of separate spheres um, that kind of continues on. Um, I mean, those are just my thoughts on it. Uh, but I was also curious about the, uh, the model of the Asian-American daughter, uh, how... I think in your introduction, you compare her to other minorities, especially Jewish daughters uh, before 1965 or before uh, the 1980s, how this can help us read um, other immigrant groups, other minorities uh, historically. Do you, uh, can you speak to that? Well, I, um, I, hesitate to, I hesitate to generalize too much here mm-hmm. because I fear grossly overextending my data set. Uh, I haven't I haven't researched a great deal about Jewish mm. or other immigrant communities. And so the book doesn't study any other non Asian narratives in detail. Mm. I um do cite, you know, a, a very few works or studies that compare uh Asian and, and other communities and, and I do that in limited fashion. Just to make the point that the discourse or technologies of child rearing that you know I'm pointing out in mm. model minority parenting, you know whether it be debt or guilt or even emphasis on education, they're not exclusive or proprietary to mm. Asian American families. 
I think if we look around, um, that they've shown up elsewhere historically when the social and racial climate met welcoming economic pathways and made them made them adaptive. But um, you know, to be clear or careful anyway, I, uh, tracing those actual parallels between the communities is, is not is not the task that I that I set for this book. Uh, the the figure of the Asian American daughter also in this book seems particularly centered on Chinese American daughters. Uh, of, the, of the seven novels that you read, all but one are seemed are written by a Chinese American woman, I believe. Uh, um, so even though throughout the book you're kind of arguing against this stereotype of, uh, you know, that Chinese daughters or Chinese men or Asian American men um, have these are you know special because of their Confucian values, you know, and Confucian ethics. And all that. Um, do you feel that there's something about um, either you know that that background or Chinese cultural backgrounds or uh, racisms associated particularly with Chinese or the political changes in China throughout the 20th century that also kind of inform uh, the model minority stereotype or this project in general? This is also, I mean, just coming from uh, you know the post 1965 is also kind of post or like right during the Cultural Revolution and all that and. You have, uh, you know, Maoism taking over and people kind of retreating from it. You know, people from Taiwan also coming to the U.S. So we, as you kind of said before, uh, the daughters also speak to the parents, right, what, what type of parents are coming. So how do you feel that kind of uh, China itself is represented in the project? Well, first of all, I really appreciate that you're not asking whether model minority parenting is just the same as as Confucianism specifically. Oh no, yeah. So I really appreciate that. But I yes, I acknowledge that because of the selection of texts, there's this inevitably this feeling that really what I'm writing about are Chinese American mm. daughters, and uh, that that was both frustrating and and um, uh, difficult uh, mm. in the writing process because um, what. I, I was gleaning from these texts. I, I didn't feel to be specifically Chinese American. I mean, for one thing, you know, being Vietnamese—that's mm. certainly not how the the narratives make sense to me or, or or read to me as a function of Chinese national political character or or, or history. Mm. But um, you know, while I did draw as much as I could from a smattering of I think there's some Japanese Americans, some South Asian writings for the book. Certainly, the the um, marquee texts are all, almost all Chinese American. And when I started writing it, well, I think if I had if I started it five or ten years later, mm-hmm. I honestly think that um, the Chinese question would have been much more negligible or maybe non-existent, mm-hmm. just by virtue of the greater diversity uh, ethnically in intergenerational conflict narratives that I've been able to incorporate. And I certainly think that that would have been the case now. Um, so, you know, I, I guess in, in answer to your question about whether, you know, I, I would trace these patterns that I'm looking at to a specific national history, um, I don't. Maybe it's because I refuse to. But mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it kind of speaks to your overall uh, narrative that uh, you know the internalization of of this kind of stereotype 
uh, you know, for most Americans, I guess I would say white Americans, right? Uh, Asian Americans are just kind of Asian, right? They're not necessarily Chinese, Japanese, or Korean. Uh, so I think your book speaks to that well. Um, let's get right into the meat of the book uh, with can your first can chapter. Just, oh, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. Can I just add one little thing more to that? Just oh, that, please, um, yeah. I guess, you know, if, if anything, as I'm thinking about your question now, um, that resistance to tracing it back to a specific Chinese American cultural or, or, or national history mm-hmm. that has something to do with my thinking of this book as very much a second generation Asian American mm-hmm. work. And, you know, I, I clearly show, I think, the, the roots of Asian American identity formation and the social movement here um, in from from the 60s, right, specifically, mm-hmm. where, you know, my, I don't think of my work as transnational. I don't think of my work as you know, really even diasporic. I, I think of it as trying to figure out this Asian American identity, which is a, um, a domestic product. Right mm-hmm. is a, a function of our uh, from all our various places and all our various histories having arrived here and um, being received by a, a single set of um, racial discourses and I mean that's that's what fascinates me really is that in so many ways all of the you know the religious differences language differences even you know differences in um, decade of immigration or, you know, terms of of immigration, class background, all of that can get erased by um, our internalization and investment in the model minority identity and uh, reproducing it. Hmm. So I think that is so powerful. That that is really what I I wanted to focus on and therefore... um, Things like the, the specificity of, you know, a particular, the Cultural Revolution, for example, um, mm-hmm. was not key to me, except in the way that it might be used discursively in the family. Mm-hmm. And other things like that, then, could be used discursively in the family in interchangeable ways, in different families and different ethnic backgrounds. Yeah, I, um, just catching on to what you said about that, uh, you, you feel like this the representation of this uh, type of daughter also appears in South Asian texts. And I, uh, your other text that you I didn't mention is, is a, uh, from a South Asian uh, American writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, being a Filipino-American myself, I, I keep thinking of that book, Her Wild American Self by Evelina mm-hmm. Galang. And I, was, mm-hmm. and I think there's a completely different representation of, you know, the, the Filipina-American uh, uh, in that text that, you know, doesn't seem, I mean, she, you know, clearly oppressed with this kind of, with sexual uh, norms, but mm-hmm. not quite to the tier, I would say, of uh, that, that you get in the Chinese American and Japanese American texts. Because um, I just noticed you didn't, you didn't use, you didn't say Southeast Asian, like, you know, Laotian, Cambodian, um, Filipino. Like, do you feel like there's a different uh, mode there or that the model minority myth is less an uh, uh, evidence there? You know, I think that, say, Vietnamese and Filipino writing that I've seen, both on the amateur level and in publication, that there's there's more, um, that there's maybe even remarkable similarity there. Mm. In not not across all of it, of course, but yeah, that that I can I can see the the narrative being replicated there, uh, in ways that. Um, well, I, I just don't know. I guess I, I haven't seen enough of Khmer or um, Hmong literature to to say so. 
I, I don't, again, I'm wary of, of venturing there. But um, while I, <clears throat> excuse me, haven't um, referenced, and I don't reference, I suppose, even in, in speaking of the book, a lot of Southeast Asian um, or you know, Pacific Islander literature, I, I would say, you know, the shoe fits wear it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that the shoe fits more often that, than we would expect, I think, given, given the, the extensive differences between these groups. I, I was thinking that, too, because there's um, another novel I kept thinking of throughout reading your, your text, uh, Monkey Bridge, right? uh, which, which is, I think, the very first Vietnamese-American novel. It definitely seems like one of the first. Um, I think it was published in the late 90s, but much of it seems like a response to... Uh, model minority myths as opposed to, you know, I'm partially because it's coming at such a later time and many of the, you know, the Southeast Asian uh, narratives are coming at a much later time. So maybe they're responding, they have time to respond to that myth more than, uh, you know, text published in the 70s, 60s and 80s. Right, right. I think that makes sense that that these later texts have also, in a sense, moved on, that Mm. they're more interested in later or, or different kinds of iterations of um, of immigrant narrative, or you know, adjusting to American life, and not necessarily in rehearsing the um, the intergenerational conflict struggle in classic ways. Again, that maybe you know, on a commercial level, the, <laughs> the region just is bored. So I don't know that we'll ever get the same. Um, kind of representation of these narratives from Southeast Asian writers as, as we have from you know, Chinese American writers. But uh, that's not to say that it's not happening um, in families. I, and that's why I think, you know, if we look, say, at the blogosphere or um, in uh, at other forms of narrative that uh, are not dependent on the, the publishing industry that we may find a lot um, more material along these lines to work with but um, I mean this is one of those moments as, as I was working on this book where I felt mm. like Jesus if I could just do some field work <laughs> and I, you know I just was stuck with whatever publishers decided to give me let's uh, start with the, your first chapter the uh, chapter on Jade Snow Wong's book Fifth Chinese Daughter uh, and I have to admit when I first read this book uh, probably like 10 years ago, um, I was one of those people who just, you know, couldn't help but roll my eyes at, you know, <laughs> it depicted, uh, I, I don't know, it just seemed so model minority <laughs> to me when I was yeah. reading it for the first time. Yeah. I, but your chapter really reveals, um, you know, this this relationship of debt bondage, as you put it, uh, and as you also put it, an economy of necessity. Uh, can you take us through uh, how you do that or any either of those key terms, necessity or debt bondage, how the daughter herself is in that role? I will try. Or <laughs> I, will, I will sum up. Um, well, um, I'll start with the term necessity, which, of, of course, isn't mine. Uh, mm. I get it from Sally Wong to talk about the kind of rhetoric that's used in the family to regulate children's uses of time and resources. So whatever the family, or so whatever the parent, I guess, demands is uh, deemed necessary to the family's well-being and survival, while 
whatever is disallowed or disapproved is deemed extravagance. But that's as tautological as it sounds, <laughs> these definitions. <laughs> and um, one of the upshots of that is that there's really no limits to the parental jurisdiction of necessity. Mm. Um, basically, everything the child is becomes subject to being commandeered for the family's good. And that's in part because everything the child is, he or she owes to the family uh, you know, at bottom for, for having been born. And, well, this is, this is one of my first beefs uh, with filial debt, mm. that uh, it's not something that you're supposed to be able to repay. Mm. You're just supposed to work at it uh, or working it off forever. I uh, compare the logic of filial debt to um, peonage, or as you mentioned, um, uh, debt bondage. So, you know, this is this is where kind of arrangement where an employer advances the cost of passage to a migrant worker and owns that worker's labor until that sum, you know, that advanced sum, is paid off. Mm. Now, basically, there's this ruse you know, of a, a finite debt that can be settled with hard work, frugal living, playing by the rules. But the exploitative version of the system, and you know, historically speaking, it's often been exploitative, is that the uh, employer keeps t- tacking on the cost of room and board, the essentials of daily living, mm. to this ever-growing tab. So... The debt climbs more quickly than you know a, a workers' paltry wages can can hope to eclipse, and so just by virtue of living, you owe more each day. Mm. Now, um, the reason I started thinking about Jade Snow Wong in these terms is because in her memoir she is forever obsessively tallying how much she makes at various jobs and chores. Mm. And, and meanwhile, she's also trying to minimize what she, you know, quote-unquote, costs the family. I mean, she seems conscious of every bite of food or every article of clothing because the power that her parents wield over her um, existence, right, increases with every debit. Mm. But um, Jade Snow doesn't realize there's there's no there's no paying this off. That even if she succeeds wildly, any achievement she attains in her life only really goes to show how much more she owes her parents for the good life she now has. <laughs> and of course, every failure means that she has squandered what she was given. So now she's deeper in the hole. So either way, right? Um, win or lose, <laughs> the debt has grown. Um, but I think the most awful thing about necessity and debt as, uh, as the foundations of family relationships is that everything the child is, good or, good or bad, becomes tabulated by that single system of values. And, and that mm. system is monetary. Mm. So it, it sets the stage for later in life where the value of what you can do for a living, say, is purely monetary. I mean, how how can a career have any other meanings um, 
you know, how can you, how can you have be legible by any other meanings in this system when your very life is just a series of, of debits and credits? This is, I think this speaks to really the, the kind of political uh, contribution, I think, of the book that there, the structure of the family, as you call it, the, um, is kind of a capitalist enterprise. I think you use that phrase. Yeah. Um, and are you claiming, in a sense, that this, this form, um, you know, reproduces, I suppose, a neoliberal subjectivity in a way that uh, it kind of trains, you know, uh, sons and daughters to think only in monetary terms that of their own value as monetary? Right. That everything is either a commodity or it becomes kind of um, incoherent, right? And, yeah, to, to, that they, they become trained to cultivate their value along commodifiable lines. I, I would definitely agree. Let's, uh, on that note, let's move to the, uh, the second <laughs> chapter of your book. Uh, sure. You look at Maxine Hong Kingston's novel, uh, Woman Warrior. I don't know if you'd call it a memoir. I can leave that up to whoever. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, whatever your, your political relations to her are. But uh, you see her relationship with her parents in a unique way as one of sovereign power and, and that the violence of their relationship seems to fall and the threat of always being abandoned by them, like this is kind of, I mean, this is getting more, even more to the heart of uh, the family narrative, right? That there's this, this threat of being abandoned or disowned um, that probably wouldn't actually happen, but it's just kind of like there is a threat, you know, sometimes a veil, sometimes a very explicit um, threat, you know. Um, so I, I'm just curious how you see that happening in the novel. Um, and in this chapter, you also bring out more of uh, the immaterial suffering, how Kingston particularly kind of captures that immaterial suffering that allows us to, to see, uh, the, you know, the daughter as a kind of political, politicized figure. Uh, can you speak uh, about your second chapter and how, uh, I, I mentioned a lot of things, <laughs> sovereign power, uh, wherever you want to start with that. Well, actually, but before I, I <laughs> dive into any of that, do you mind if I make a quick tangent? Oh, go ahead. I, um, I met up with Maxine Hawkinson a few weeks ago when mm. she was in town in Santa Barbara doing a reading. And she shared with me the best story about Shane Snow Wong. <laughs> so um, it turns out that the Wong family had some major longevity. And uh, her mother lived till she was past 100. Wow. So when Jade Snow was like, 85 years old, her mother was still asking her oh. if she was going to find a real job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just perfect. I wish I'd known that somehow <laughs> writing the book. Um, but okay, so uh, the, the Kingston chapter, uh, yes, that's where I first bring up disownment. Mm. What I say about a disownment there is how. Um, the threat of that, of, of being kicked out of a family for not for not achieving obedience, mm. is, as you say, always there in the background. And interestingly, it's, it, it's ready to be activated for the most trivial of reasons. Mm. So this, for me, was trying to explain the scale of anger or backlash that Maxine or... Um, or others, my narrators, would uh, describe receiving from their parents for even the most 
minor infractions, predictably minor infractions, like coming home a few minutes late, even though you called or wearing the wrong shoes. Mm. Um, these transgressions would be received as if you you just stab the family in the gut. And um, that's the thing. That's the, the disproportionate quality of that response um, tells you that the, the basis of this relationship is that of banishment. Mm. So, you know, in the first chapter, I was trying to work through something appalling. <laughs> the, uh, the What was appalling about debt and necessity and the commodification, basically, of all you know, value in the child. And then, then uh, the ho- second horror for me here is being conditioned as a child to your position in the family as, as provisional and, you know, kind of hair trigger provisional mm-hmm. that is liable to being revoked for any reason subject to the sovereign's sole discretion. Mm-hmm. So if this is the ever-present power play Right, you know the the always ultimatum that you cave or be disowned, then then no wonder there are there are no graduated levels of anger pegged to varying severities of discretion. If you if you fucked up, then the whole weight of the ultimatum comes down on you, mm. because there is no such thing as disownment that can be doled out in fractions. Right. It, it so, seems like a very, like, I, I like that you mentioned sovereign power because it helps us imagine, you know, this idea that you could any time be executed or something, you know, <laughs> in a sense, like a so, type of social death. Because um, we usually imagine it, you know, as uh, parents saying, like, this is for your, your own good, you know, this is for your own health that I'm doing this. Right. Uh, I mean, in the novel, it, it, it seems like it's more, it is like, as you describe, it's more kind of like these just bare threats of, like, you know, you're going to embarrass us or your ancestors or something like that more than more than we would expect, which is, you know, your own health and your own body relies on you, you know, uh, regulating yourself uh, in certain ways. Right. Yeah. As you say, you know, sometimes bare and um, sometimes veiled, but always kind of there. And so what what I wanted to to try to map out, I guess, is is how that everlasting underlying threat would, would play out in a, in a child psyche to know that her status as a daughter could be put on the chopping block at any time, right? So even if she's never actually disowned, as you said, right? Mm. She just lives the constant threat, then, then what, does that, what does that do to her? Mm. Yeah, do you have any uh, thoughts on, on what that does to her particularly? Like the, the uh, I mean, we, part of this chapter also meditates on how do you capture... Uh, this kind of immaterial suffering when, you know, your parents especially or parents in general have been, have been downplaying it, you know, for yeah. all your life. Uh, you know, so how does how does that kind of manifest, you think, later in life, uh, this idea that you've just been whining and there's no real, you know, material uh, proof of your su- of suffering? Right. Well, your first question about um, what it does to... Um, what it does to the daughter, I think I, that I address maybe in a later chapter mm. more so than this one. But yes, in this chapter, the other thing that it does is that I, I'm trying to explain the challenges of expressing pain in ways that will be validated if your pain is not visible on the body or empirically 
verifiable somehow, right? Yeah, to your readership, to to anyone, much less to your, your parents. So, um, and Chang talks about this problem racially in terms of racial grievance. Right, which you can sue for and even even put a dollar amount on, mm. right? Um, versus racial grief, which yeah, at best you're supposed to just get over, and, yeah. and that's that's if any anyone believes that you you suffered a loss at all. So uh, I talk about um, both Anne Chang's work actually and Kingston as, as having to find some very circuitous ways to express what subjection feels like for Asian Americans, and, you know, especially second-generation Asian Americans, when what it looks like is, yes, that you're whining in the, the lap of luxury. Mm. So um, key in this argument for both, I think, it's the key moment for both Cheng and uh, for me is the illness that Maxine describes having where she spent those 18 months in bed with no pain, no symptoms, <laughs> but didn't have to go to school, right? And that's a pretty dubious impression when you have no observable ailments and you seem to be getting special treatment. Mm. So um, uh, I, I don't know if maybe this, this point isn't too much in the weeds to uh, explain well here, but... Um, in this chapter, I, I try to argue that, that both Chang and Kingston resort to comparing or, or borrowing from black or immigrant forms, um, you know, like the, the no-name woman or the mm. mother's experiences, to express Asian-American and second-generation experience. But, um, you know... I, does it work? You know, is the I, I don't I don't know. Um, I think what um, I think you that there's that it, it does it does a lot of expressive work. This comparison, mm. uh, this borrowing, and yet it remains it remains flawed, um, mm-hmm. and you know, in understandable ways. Um, for, for one thing, I think what we see in some of the later texts that I talk about is a different um, kind of uh, tactic for expressing this kind of pain, which you might call um, uh, somaticizing or somaticizing strategies. Mm. So various tactics for um, marking this kind of invisible psychic pain onto the body where it can it can be mm. treated or at least uh, seen, but ends up, of course, being self-destructive as well. Mm. Is this the So in your third chapter, you, you talk about uh, Evelyn Lau's run, book, uh, Runaway, and Catherine Leo's uh, Oriental Girls Desire Romance. Uh, yes. So part of your point, I think, in these texts uh, is that they have this kind of, uh, you know, as you called it, um, psychosomatic, but also masochistic response to parental mm-hmm. control. Can you yeah. uh, let's talk about that for a minute? Like, why masochism and and why uh, psychosomaticism? Um, well, you know, I, I don't want to imply that this is literally psychosomatic, but, mm-hmm. yeah. but I, I want to definitely make a kind of analogy there that yeah, that they're they're enacting pain on their bodies in, in this um, way that makes it more legible. Mm. So. Um, Okay, so why am I masochistic? Well, maybe I'll start with um, um, because both of these texts seem to be about very like 
they're going out into the world. Uh, you know, they they seem very like they're resisting their parents, but you know, kind of to the detriment of their own uh, bodies. You know, whether they're uh, and, and part of their then reconciliation, I guess, is is to write about their experiences, which mm-hmm. you also read as a, as a type of you know response to parental control and a masochistic one at that. Like, I guess I'm just curious why. Uh, the, 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 you know why they seek to harm their own bodies in, in these texts, at least, and how writing can be a kind of response. Like you'd think, successful writing, right, would be a good way to um, make a living, and you know would really impress uh, the parents. But here, it seems to be more of an active rebellion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yes. What's What's interesting to me about both of um, these figures, the the Lao and the Lu figures, is that, as you say, they they both come off, initially anyway, as very rebellious, resistant daughters. Mm. And they seem to be, you know, hell-bent on breaking all the rules and getting out of the house and all that. But um, the, the more I, I, I looked at it, the more I felt like the kinds of rebellion that they were choosing were also very self-punishing. Mm. And... Um, Self-punishing in terms of, uh, yes, their own bodies, so they put themselves at risk in um, frightening ways, risk of disease, risk of injury, risk of death. Uh, So Evelyn Lau, of course, is the um, memoir of a 14-year-old girl who runs away from home, and so she lives on the streets for a number of years, two years. Um, At least that's the the, um, length of time that this diary that I look at covers and in that time you know she nearly starves she um gets you know attacked uh she you know nearly freezes on the street so yes this kind of risk to self um which she chooses partly because of how effective it is in this indirect way this implicit way of showing that you know she would rather undergo that than than live at home, right? And so, it it conveys something very powerfully. At the same time, who is suffering for her choice? Well, first and most directly, her. Mm. And um, I think that model extends to um, other life decisions, and in this kind of you know wry and depressing way, <laughs> I include um, writing careers, include, and, you know, uh, even academic writing mm-hmm. careers are devoted to literature <laughs> uh, as, as these forms of rebellion that are also self-punishing because uh, some of the things that, um, you, in this case, you're punishing maybe not your body, but... Um, Oh, you're punishing your uh, your wallet. <laughs> you know? and you're you're punishing your ability to, um, um, you know, quote unquote, succeed mm. uh, in the um, in the model minority forms. But of course, those are you know materially very rewarding. And so, what is it to to turn away from? the opportunities uh, of those clear pathways mm. and decide instead to be poor, right? Mm. Um, so um, there's there's that that I talk about in terms of the writing and, and also um, that 
both of these writers, uh, also Lao and Liu, um, express how painful writing itself um, can be. Mm. That uh, they do it in a way that um, is um, is a bit like rending oneself open. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if you look at each of these instances and uh, what comes across um, uh, comes through across all of them is the the pain that they inflict on themselves then I wanted to understand why that pain was there right why mm-hmm. why wasn't resistance just a matter of you know kind of finding hedonistic <laughs> pleasure but uh, it seemed to me that there was some kind of um, bargain being struck mm. right um well, partly as as a these particular modes of rebellion were of course conditioned by the terms of um, parental expectations and necessity itself, right? That mm-hmm. um, what they ended up choosing were the things that uh, they weren't clearly supposed to choose um, mm-hmm. because they they're not lucrative um, writing, reading, etc. Uh, is the opposite of of math and the, the STEM fields, um, in their minds and in the, in the, the family's minds, and also in the you know in the economic sphere. Mm. So um, it's kind of like they're devaluing the the, the, the value of uh, of, mon- of you know money and monetary value. Like they're <laughs> responding to that kind of neoliberal subjectivity, yes. uh, resisting it in a way. Yes, uh, yeah. So they're turning away from that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're declining it, but they decline it at um, their their own expense. Um, and well, it feels like to me like one of the things I really liked about this chapter was it, it was you know you in the chapter before you talk about this immaterial suffering, and then you have like this very like you know easy to see, I guess, very uh, recognizable type of suffering, mm-hmm. you know, living on the streets, exposure to the cold. Um, you know, uh, just so many things that happen <laughs> in these women's lives. <clears throat> and then the kind of, you know, punchline or the, the payoff is it's still better than the suffering I went through at home. <laughs> yeah. So it gives us a kind of a, a different comparison to their immaterial suffering that seems different from like, as you were saying with, you know, Anne Chung, that um, comparing the Asian American experience to African Americans, it, it seems like this is a different kind of lens to see that suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yes, a different way of trying to express it. Uh, so in your fourth chapter, you end the book with a meditation on female sexuality and the attempts to discipline sexual desire in the family. Uh, and you start out with a very like basic question, why rebellious girls have sex and why parents uh, even care that they have sex. Uh, so look, can you just uh, begin with that? What did you find out uh, about that in these narratives? <laughs> I am. Um... First of all, I appreciate that you put it that way in terms of what I what I found out, <laughs> as odd as that sounds, because once the book is done, you tend to talk about it in terms of what I argue and <laughs> yeah. my position is, but that's really not the process, and it's mm-hmm. nice to be, it's nice to be reminded, you know, that um, that it was written with questions um, you don't know the answers to, and that, uh, anyway, it reminded me that I, I kept writing uh, in this book until... You know, a sentence would knock the wind out of me, mm-hmm. and then I would stop. Um, but 
Okay, so it's 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 a deceptively simple question, right? Mm, yeah. Why why rebellious girls have sex? Why parents care? Um, and there's the, the part about why parents care is actually maybe a little boring to talk about. It's boring, but it's it's quite it speaks to our assumptions, right? We we always assume, of course, parents are going to care, but then to ask why, like that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe if I can just kind of cut to the end of this. You know, okay. what, I, <laughs> um, what I ended up arguing is that, you know, we think that um, parents keep girls at home because they want to regulate their sexuality. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I ended up arguing is that, well, maybe <laughs> parents uh, regulate girls' sexuality so they can keep the girls at home. Mm. Um, and if you contextualize this in what I argued in previous chapters about, you know, creating the very self-policing subject, somebody who comes to try to anticipate the the wishes of power even before they're expressed, even if power hasn't yet um, even formulated that particular wish, right, that um, sexual control, especially with you know, the, the narrative of it's being for your own good, for your own protection, mm. right? Um, and the, the kind of harsh bodily threat that will come from elsewhere, but we are going to protect you from this by keeping you within these four walls. Right, oh, sorry, that was my phone. Um, that um, we, 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 we can see those same mechanisms working, but when it comes to you add the you know the regulation of female sexuality in it seems to work excuse me to like this nth degree mm. um, and then in terms of why then rebellious girls have sex again you know well it's just kind of flipping the uh, the choices but but I, beyond that I also think it's interesting because because there is such um, an element of pleasure in it, mm-hmm. right? That um, it's easy to see that and then miss what I keep obsessing about, which is um, the the equal uh, element of um, of pain and and um, self destruction and punishment in these sexual choices, many of which for the narrators that I talk about in this chapter are terrible sexual choices, right? Uh, again, they're, they're not going out there, um, at least at this stage in their, you know, young, early uh, rebellions and, and finding healthy relationships to replace their familial ones. Mm. No, they, they, what they seem to um, court is more damage, right? Mm. But it, again, it's this kind of weird devil's bargain that that the pain is somehow punishing them. But they're 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 buying their way out of um, paying for you know filial debt uh, directly to the parents by just kind of enacting punishment on on their own mm. bodies, on their own relationships, on their own psyches. And it, yeah, it seems like a very <clears throat> particularly like as we were saying before, a reaction from the the daughter as opposed to the sons. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to know, by terrible decision, you don't mean just because they're, they're promiscuous, but also because they're they're choosing to like be with people who don't you know don't respect them at all, who uh, mm-hmm. sometimes very violent, right? Um, 
Yeah, or strangers, right? Mm-hmm. And without taking care, without, without taking care of themselves, mm-hmm. right? That there's in the, these last two chapters, um, I, I was really trying to describe this carelessness with the self, mm-hmm. right? That, well, I mean, if your if your life isn't yours to begin with. <laughs> um, then would you care if you lose it, I suppose, right? But then, on the other hand, um, the the way to demonstrate that it is yours is to destroy it. Like mm. Nobody can destroy it like mm-hmm. I can, right? So, um, it was, it's the ambiguousness, the ambivalence of these acts, um, that they're they're both seeking you know self preservation and they're seeking their own destruction and um, they they seem to only know how to find one through the other mm. that um, that I'm I'm trying to talk through in the last two paragraphs or no, chapters. So to uh, to kind of end on a, a bit of a happier note, I guess <laughs> <laughs> after all this talk of immaterial suffering, uh, I'm just I'm sure you've gotten this question from readers. Uh, at the end, you know, like, what are we, I don't know, like, as, as children of the second generation, you know, the third generation, I guess you could say, uh, you know, what do, I, I almost want to say, where's the hope, but that sounds like too, <laughs> but, you know, uh-huh. uh, you know, what are we to do, I guess, you know, I, I mean, do you, how do you see this uh, style of this, uh, you know, capitalist enterprise, this family as a capitalist enterprise being reproduced now? Do you feel like, uh, like, you know, as we were kind of saying that literature, it seems, um, has either gotten fed up with or has, you know, overproduced this kind of narrative? Where do you see things going uh, after uh, after the kind of second generation? You know, I always feel like when people ask this, I should apologize for ending the book. No, in not at all. a terrible place. <laughs> um, and it, it's true. I, I knew as I ended it, right, that... Um, what I'd done here was just to provide a diagnostic. And then as a diagnostic, it really just tells you, oh, you have cancer, I'm sorry. But <laughs> it doesn't really go into, okay, here's what we're going to do next at all. Uh, but, you know, the, the way that I framed the academic work, I, I really feel like I can't, right? <laughs> if, if, I, if I start talking about, oh, and here's hope, <laughs> and uh, here's how you get out of it, then I, it's almost like I'm writing a self-help book suddenly <laughs> in the last, um, chapter and so I, I just kind of I didn't um, but um, you know I, I feel that in some ways you know um, while it, it sounds bleak that the reason I, I wrote the book was to not only diagnose um, the uh, the dynamics here mm-hmm. but also to point out the the shortcomings of maybe some of our existing strategies for coping, mm. right? And so, you know, my my own hope and and, and honestly, writing this helps helps me a great mm. a great deal. Um, was that being able to see the double edgedness of things and um, you know the what the ways in which we were choosing to self punish and self destroy. Uh, even as we were hoping to resist, right, mm. would enable different choices, choices that I didn't then proceed to prescribe or or describe, but um, that, you know, I, I hope to have um, made more more possible or more easily visible from here. Mm. Okay, well, on that note, are you uh, working on any new research now? Or what are the kind of uh, next steps after this? 
Well, I um, I am working on on taking some of these old topics but in a new direction. Mm. So, um, you know, when when I talk about ingratitude, <laughs> I often get pushed back from social scientists asking me where I get my data. Mm. And uh, I can say until I'm I'm blue in the face that what I'm I'm trying to get at in in this book were uh, questions of discourse and questions mm-hmm. of subjectivity, which seem to me to be particularly well suited for literature. Mm-hmm. And you know, not so much the province of self-report essays or surveys, sorry. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, this work and even those explanations, they don't win me many social scientist fans. So <laughs> the, um, the, the next project is about trying to bridge that gap, that uh, epistemological mm-hmm. breach you know, um, really, between what social scientific and humanistic methodologies believe that we can know about um, the same topic Mm. and and how we can validly come to know it. Mm -hmm. So the the working title for my next project is Interdisciplinary Conflict. Mm. (laughs) Um, Literary and, yeah, (laughs) Literary and Psychological Studies on the Asian American Immigrant Family. So I'll be, uh, I'll be taking up questions of parenting and intergenerational conflict again, but I'm hoping to compare literary and and research psychology approaches to them. So. That sounds fascinating. Now it's the it's also the the family of Asian American studies. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I don't have anything to show. So, um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's going to be exciting. It's also a little it's a little daunting, as you can mm-hmm. imagine. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Erin, uh, for being on the show today. Uh, I think I learned a lot and. Uh, yeah, the if your goal was to uh, represent immaterial suffering in ways, I definitely felt that. <laughs> uh, as I was, you know, I, I feel much differently about these novels uh, than I did when I was first reading them. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Chris. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Take care. Thank you once again for listening to my interview with Dr. Erin Kuei Ning on her book, Ingratitude. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear another interview with an author about the subject of politicizing women in the home, uh, d- domestic work, and daughters, I highly suggest the interview with Emily Machar on her book, Homeward Bound, Why Women Are Embracing the New Domesticity. Uh, this podcast can be found on the New Books in American Studies website or on iTunes. Just search for New Books in American Studies. I highly suggest this podcast. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.